a note on the pulpit here that I'm not sure if Jason read it, but no, okay. Samaritan's Purse Collection. Uh, well, I'll read it and that'll explain it easier than if I try to explain it. Thank you for your generous donations over these past months. We are now ready to pack our boxes and deliver them to the local drop-off location. Samaritan's Purse adds discipleship booklets to each of the boxes. If you would like to help with the shipping expenses, there is a container on the table at the back for this purpose. So, that's the nub of it, isn't it? If you would like to help with the shipping, there's a container, no pun intended, on the table at the back of the sanctuary for this purpose. So thanks again for that. In case you forget, I'll keep it here and try and say it tonight. Now, let us take our Bibles and turn again to the book of Proverbs. And this time we go to chapter 28. And it's really just one verse. I know the bulletin says verse 14, but it's only verse 13. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13. Here is one of those remarkable, penetrating verses in all of the Bible that we should give heed to. I have entitled this Confessing for Life. Confessing for Life. We have seen already that we need wisdom for life and we need trusting, to be trusting for life, for all of our life. And now this morning, this is about confessing for life. Meaning, of course, that this is not a once-off thing that you do and it's done, but this is an ongoing practice. So, verse 13. Proverbs 28. Whoever, or he, or she, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. How profound. How simple. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have reminded ourselves of all that Jesus has accomplished for us at the cross. His suffering, his body given for us, his blood shed for us. That your word tells us these things and we believe your word and the promises of your word. And now we are confronted by Proverbs 28 verse 13, which contains very precious promises, very true statements and consequences. So help us, we pray, as we look at this verse to understand the import and the significance of it to our good, to our benefit, all by your grace. These things we pray and ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I think we can say right up front that here are two principles in verse 13 that cannot be changed, that cannot be made less than what they say. Many times when it comes to various particular things about our sin or our sinfulness, we might want to downplay the seriousness or the significance of them. We can't do that in this verse. This verse will not allow you to escape uh, whichever way you might think you can. So, notice that there are two statements made in verse 13, right? First of all, 
that he who conceals his transgressions, that's the first statement we could say, and the second is he who confesses and forsakes them. So he who conceals and he who confesses and forsakes. And then will you notice also, in light or connected to those two individual statements, that there are two consequences or two results. If you conceal, first of all, your sin, your transgressions, the writer says, God's Word says, you will not prosper. If you conceal your sin, your transgression, you will not prosper. Second, if you confess and forsake your sin, those transgressions, the writer says you will obtain mercy. If I were to uh, look at this from my perspective, from our perspective, confession and concealing are very much what we do or should be engaged in at least confessing. The concealing is perhaps something we do and should not do, of course. But it's the other side that is so beautiful and remarkable that if we confess, we obtain mercy. And what kind of mercy is that? Where does this mercy come from? It's the mercy of God. So, if you conceal, then there are consequences. If you confess and forsake, there are consequences as well. So, if we were to define this, because like good Puritans, we always have to define what is the doctrine, what is the idea behind the statement, for instance, in verse 13. Well, it's quite simple, isn't it? You must not hide your sins. You must not hide your sins, but instead, you must confess them. I mean, how simple it is, right? Don't hide, don't conceal your sins, but confess them, is what the writer is saying. So here is a, a proverb that has a cause and an effect. If you conceal your transgressions, cause, the effect is you do not prosper. But on the other hand, cause, if you confess and forsake your transgressions, result, you obtain mercy. You obtain mercy. To conceal sin equals will not prosper. It's the same thing. If you conceal sin, you do not prosper. But if you confess and forsake sin, you obtain mercy. And how different those are, aren't they? What a difference between concealing and confessing. And what a difference between not prospering and obtaining mercy on the one hand. Or we could put it like this. If you want to prosper, not physically per se, but spiritually, if you want to prosper spiritually, don't hide your sin. If you want to prosper don't hide your sin, right? Or, if you want to enjoy and obtain the mercy of God, then confess and forsake sin. Confess and forsake sin. Or we could put it this way. If you confess your sins, you prosper. But if you conceal your sins, there's no mercy. And you can see how they are tied together then, right? They are, they are inextricably linked. You can't have the one and not the other. That the one demands the other. If you want to conceal your sins, there's no prospering. But if you want to confess your sins and do confess your sins, then there's a result. You obtain the mercy of God. 
Now we can make it even more severe or more serious for ourselves, which I think the text implies. Here are two principles. Here are two laws that cannot be changed. Here are, here are laws that are set, if you like, in stone or in concrete or in the character of God, as we should say, that we cannot change. Because this is God's word to us. You notice on the one hand, one is negative, And on the other hand, one is positive. If you conceal your transgressions, you will not prosper. Negative. But if you confess and forsake those transgressions, you will obtain mercy. Positive. So we have here these, this negative and this positive principle or law that God's Word gives to us. Or let's put it this way. You cannot confess your sins and keep them at the same time. You might think you can. You might try. But you cannot confess your sins and have them, keep them at the same time. The contrast between these two statements, these two principles, is not between great sin and small sin. It's not between big sins and little sins. No, that's not the contrast. The contrast is between concealed sins and confessed sins. Concealed sins. You keep them. You hide them. You store them away for another day. Or you tell God about them. You are open before God, and you confess them to God. In fact, if you conceal the smallest sin, the most, in your mind, insignificant sin, you will not prosper. There are no degrees here to, to which sin gets an excuse. There are no excuses for your sin, my sin. If I conceal my sin, the smallest sin shall not prosper. If you do it, you shall not prosper. That's the statement of the word. But if you confess the worst sin that there is, you shall obtain the mercy of God. Maybe we could put it like this. The real issue is that this is a verse of life and death. Right? It's either life or death. And that's the verse here. What a revealing verse is this. In fact, <clears throat> I discover that this is the doctrine of the Bible. From the very beginning to the very end. That the Bible talks about the very thing that we have in this verse of concealing or hiding sin. And it also talks about confessing sin. And the one is spiritual death and the other is spiritual life. With the one concealing, we believe that we can get away with it. That's why we conceal it. With the other, we are saying to ourselves by confessing, I can't get away. God knows. It may be that other people know, and therefore you must confess to them as well, as well as to God. But let's just say it's against God, because ultimately all sin must be confessed to God. And so this is a doctrine that the Bible proclaims and teaches all throughout itself, that there is no prosperity spiritually in hiding your sins and keeping them 
and tucking them away. And then there is this great mercy to be obtained if we tell God all about it. Which will it be? That is the issue. Which will it be for you? Which will it be? So, let's consider this verse. First of all, <clears throat> this is a verse that is a mind and mouth matter. A mind and mouth matter. Now, what do I mean by a mind and a mouth matter? Well, to conceal sin is to do what with it? Hide it, right? To conceal sin is to hide it away. But where do you hide it away? See, the thing about sin, you can't hide it in your cupboard. You can't hide it in another room in your house. No, we hide sin in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. It's a mind thing. We hide it in that which is inviolable from our perspective to others. Because you can't see my mind, and I can't see your mind. You can't see my heart. And I can't see your heart. The one good thing is that, like God said to Samuel, I don't look on the outward appearance, Samuel. I look at the heart. And David's the man. Because his heart is right. So to conceal sin is to hide it in your mind and your heart. Or to put it this way, it's an inner thing. It's an inward thing, right? It's inside you. You've put it away. You keep it in reserve for another day to enjoy it. But to confess sin is to reveal it, right? And to reveal it sometimes with your mouth, because confession is really should be with your mouth. You're telling not only others, but you tell God. In fact, Romans 10.9, in terms of salvation, says, that if you confess with your mouth, right? If you confess with your mouth. So to conceal something is to keep it private. But to confess it is to make it public, at least public to God. So verse 13 is a mind and a mouth matter. Okay? Secondly, verse 13 is a motive-driven and manifestation matter. A motive-driven and a manifestation matter. I mean, let's ask, you, ask yourself this question. Why would you conceal sin? There's a motive behind that. So, why would I conceal my sin? Because I must examine my motives. There's something not right. And that's why I hide it. Or, why would you confess your sins? Because you want to manifest it. You're tired of hiding it. You're tired of keeping it private. You're tired of keeping it personal. You tell God all about it. In other words, what is concealed must be revealed. Don't hide sin. Reveal it. Tell God. Sin, sin, transgression, is either concealed or confessed. There's no middle ground. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no gray area. No, it's either one or the other. You either conceal or you confess. You can't conceal and think, well, maybe I'll tell God and we'll see about that. No, it's either one or the other. You either confess or you either conceal your transgressions. No middle ground. 
How do I know there's no middle ground? Because in that verse on confession, it adds the word and forsake. You see, that's the nub. That's the proviso. That's the issue. It's one thing to confess my sin. It's a very different matter to forsake my sin. And you can see that if you don't forsake your sin, but merely confess your sin, what you're really doing is concealing your sin. Oh, this is a provocative verse, isn't it? This is a powerful verse for us. So to forsake sin reveals a true confession. A true confession. That's the hinge. If you want to see what's in the cupboard, you open the cupboard, right? And it turns on the hinges. The hinges keep the door there. This is, this is how you see what's inside, those hinges that are there. So this is personal sin, isn't it? Because look at verse 13. <coughs> Whoever conceals his, his, her transgression. Your sins, my sins, whoever hides his or her sin. And notice, whoever confesses and forsakes them. The them is the same as transgression, right? Your, my transgressions. So, this is a sin matter. It's not just a mind-mouth matter and not just a motives-manifestation matter. It's a sin matter. But, not only that... The consequences to this verse are specific and they are quite, quite certain. Right? So notice, will not prosper. Definite, certain, guaranteed. No equivocation. No compromise. If you conceal your sin, no prospering. No debate. No... Well, maybe, maybe God will overlook it this time. No, no prospering. You will not prosper. And notice, you will, on the other hand, if you confess and forsake and obtain mercy. Certain, guaranteed, the mercy of God, lavished, poured out upon those who do not deserve it. Right? The difference, as I've said, is really... A life and death thing, spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking. So what does it mean, having said all that, to conceal sin? And what does it mean to confess sin? So let's begin with to conceal sin. What does that mean? Well, it's quite simple. When you conceal something, you're hiding it, right? That's what the writer is saying here. To conceal your sins means you hide it. You hide it from view. Nobody else sees it. Nobody else knows it. You hide it. The Hebrew word, uh, kasah, that is used here, has the simple idea of to cover. To cover over. To conceal sin means to cover your sin. Now when I look out upon you this morning, all of you are wearing clothes. So am I. Why are you wearing clothes? To cover your bodily parts. To hide them from view. That's what it is. The clothing 
is the covering. So I clothe myself to cover myself, to conceal myself, which is the right thing to do, right? Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? They knew they were naked. They knew they had violated the commandment of God. What did they do? They sowed fig leaves and they covered themselves or clothed themselves. Do you know the interesting thing about the covering of themselves with fig leaves is that they then went and hid themselves? Why did they go and hide themselves? What did the covering represent, really? It represented their guilt. And it represented their desire to not be seen by God. Adam, where are you? I hid myself because I knew that I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that the day you eat of it is the day you die? You don't prosper, right? So, when Adam and Eve sinned, that covering of fig leaves only showed a determination to cover, to hide, to conceal, and hold on to their sin. If you've served in the military, the military, as we know, uses camouflage. Why camouflage? To hide themselves. To conceal themselves from view. You all know those pictures of snipers who are dressed in brambles and bushes and, you know, you can't even tell they're there till they raise their head. They're, they're hidden. They're concealed, right? They're camouflaged. That's what we do with sin. We camouflage sin. Now, camouflaging sin is a little bit different to concealing sin. Because camouflage is very deceptive. And that's the aim of it. And so you can see there are depths to concealing and depths to hiding your sin. Listen to Job. Job in chapter 31. He has a long list where he tells God... If I, if I, if I, if I. Long, long list of if I. And then he says this in verse 33. If I have concealed or covered my transgressions as others do by hiding iniquity in my heart. You see, Job recognizes that to cover sin is to conceal it from the view of others, to hide it from others in the heart. And that's where it takes place. We conceal sin by hiding it so that it will not be known or seen by others. You remember when Achan, in Joshua chapter 7, tucked a few things away in his tent. You remember how God said everything in Jericho is to be devoted to destruction, right? Right? Doesn't matter what it was, person, animal, everything, devoted to destruction. But what did Achan do? He didn't obey that. In fact, he saw a beautiful Babylonian garment, which he coveted and took. He saw some shekels of silver and gold, and he coveted them and he took them. And then he hurried back. I can see him, right? Scurrying through the, the tents of Israel, hurrying back to his tent. The floor, whatever he maybe has some carpets covering the floor, digs a hole, covers 
the Babylonian garment, the silver and the gold with the earth, as if it's never existed. Never existed. And then they went out to fight Ai, you remember? <laughs> and Ai chased them and defeated a few of them. And Joshua is like, what, what is happening? Well, God says, well, why are you complaining? Because Israel has sinned. The reason for their defeat, the reason for them not prospering, is that they have sinned. There's sin in the camp. And you remember how they cast lots and whittled it all down? There's Achan before Joshua. And you know what Joshua says to him? He says, now tell me, my son, what is it that you have done? And Achan, he doesn't hide it. He's already done that. He's already concealed it in his tent floor, but he says, yeah, I'm found out. He says, I coveted. And then he says, I really, in his telling Joshua, he tells him, I committed sin, I concealed my sin, and I am now condemned by my sin. And Joshua says, yep, and you're going to be consumed by your sin. And he was, and all his family, because all his family were in the know. They all knew what he had done, and they had agreed to keep it silent. If you will conceal your sin, you shall not prosper. That's Achan. Big lesson, right? For us not to hide and conceal our sins. We conceal our sins by hypocrisy. Oh, what a strange thing hypocrisy is. How natural it comes to us. How easily we, we are hypocritical in our words, in our behavior, in our actions, right? We don't want others to know what we're really like. So we wear a spiritual mask, a facade upon our faces to show that I'm spiritual when in reality you're anything but, right? No, that's hypocrisy. That tells you that if that's what hypocrisy is, that it's really a heart issue happens inside. You make this determination. And the interesting thing about sin is that it cannot be hidden from God. You can't conceal sins from God. They're open to Him like the sun shining upon it. In all its ugliness, God looks at it and says, yep, I see it. There it is, clearer than anything. And we say, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. We hide it. We conceal it. To hide sin, to conceal sin, is to be false. Is to justify yourself and your reasons for why you keep sin, hide sin. It's to deceive yourself. And it, by the way, if you deceive yourself, it leads to a denial of sin. I didn't do that. I'm not guilty of that. Haven't you noticed that all the denials that happen in public, in our government officials and all of that? Well, I didn't do that. I'm not guilty. It's clear as, as clear as mud that you're guilty, right? There it is. Everybody can see it. It really is to hide sin, to live with a secret in your heart. A secret that only you know about and nobody else knows about. A secret that is so precious to you, you cover it, hide it, camouflage it, whatever it is, so that it will never be known. It's private. It's personal. It's mine. It's mine. You remember what Jesus said in that denouncing passage in Matthew 23 when he kept saying, Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe. Woe to you, lawyers. Woe to you. Seven woes, right? A series of seven woes. This is what he says of the religious leaders. He says, You 
also appear outwardly righteous to others. But within, inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, can you imagine Jesus? He stands, there's a Pharisee in front of him and he just tells him, you know, on the outside, you're a hypocrite. Inside, you're just full of hypocrisy and sin, lawlessness. I wonder how many of those Pharisees were so convicted that they stopped concealing their sins and being different, right? When I read that verse, I thought to myself, that's what the Lord is saying to me and to you. What are you hiding in your heart so that you appear righteous to others and they don't think anything bad? Of you, but only good, because you appear outwardly to be different to what you know you really are. Why do we conceal sin, right? Well, number one, there's a shame attached to sin. We feel it, right? Number two, there's a guilt. We know it. It judges us, it rises up before us, it condemns us. There's a guilt to it. Number three, there's a love for it. That's the worst of all. There's a desire for more of it. And you know the interesting thing about sin is that it breeds and it feeds upon itself. The more you sin, the more sin makes itself available to you. John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, and I'm I'm inclined to read this passage because I think it's important. So I think let's turn there, 1 John chapter 3. He tells us that sin is lawlessness. 1 John chapter 3. And verse 4 through verse 12. This passage may be one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible, even for a Christian. So, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone, verse 4, 1 John 3, 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why? Well, sin is lawlessness. You know that He, that's Jesus, He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen or known Him. Look at that verse. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil." Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Sin is lawlessness, isn't it? That's a frightening passage. I believe I have preached on that passage and I'm fearful of it. It's a very serious passage. Practicing sin, right? Don't know God. 
don't know God if you practice, keep on practicing sin. So what happens when we conceal sin? Well, the text tells us you will not prosper, right? That word prosper means to succeed. It means to advance. Makes sense, right? So to not prosper is to fail, spiritually speaking. Especially here in verse 13. To not prosper doesn't mean that your business is going to collapse, which it might, by a temporal judgment from God. That's entirely possible. That your health might collapse, which is a temporal judgment from God, which it might and can do. But primarily, this is a spiritual concealing of your sin, to not prosper here. You know, if you conceal that you have a very bad disease, then there's really no possibility of being cured of it, right? If you keep it to yourself, you don't tell the doctor, don't tell the whoever, there's no no real possible of a cure at all, right? You're not going to get better. Just so, and in the same way, we cannot wish, as you cannot wish your diseases away, you cannot wish your sins away. As if they don't exist. As if they're not too bad. As if they're just small and... I didn't mean to do it, and God will understand, and so on. No. You can't conceal them. You can't debate them. To conceal them, you do not prosper, the writer says. Now listen, you may hide your sins from others, from your spouse, but you cannot hide them from God. You cannot hide sin from God. You know how I know that? God's word tells me. And my conscience tells me. And God has given every one of us a conscience. Now conscience is not an infallible witness. But it sure can be a very reliable testimony against me. And against you. You know. You see when you know. When you are convicted. Conscience is striking. And conscience makes available to your conscience the word. Of God. The Puritans like to refer to the conscience as the sheriff of God. He's finding out what's going on really in your life, in your heart, and in your mind. See, conscience will never let us get away from guilt. If we are Christians, you're certainly not going to get away with it. You will always feel in your conscience, because it smites you, the pang and the pain of guilt. It's just the way God has made us. He has invested His character, Himself into us at creation. This is who we are. And every one of us has a conscience. Now you can shut it away. You can commit more sin and harden and sear your conscience. But it doesn't go away ever. Because it's who you are. And it will rise up at the judgment, our consciences, and say... I told you. I told you. I told you a thousand times. I told you. You see, that's what it means to not prosper. To not prosper. So I want to know, how can I prosper, right? That's the big thing. How can I prosper then? How can I succeed? How can I advance? The text tells you, you must confess your transgressions to God. Remember David. Oh, David sinned so badly against God, didn't he? But he's no different to us. No different to us. 
And David says this in Psalm 32 and verse 3, When I kept silent, when I concealed my sin, when I hid my sin from God, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You see, there's a physical consequence to sin. It'll strike you physically as well. You just won't feel right because conscience says you're not right. You can't hide your sins. You see, conviction of sin is that which will lead to confession of sin. Conviction is a very vital and important ingredient in conversion. You must be convicted of sin to confess sin. You must know how bad it is. You must feel the the guilt and the weight of it before you can tell God that's exactly what it is. What does it mean to confess your transgressions? What does that mean? The word confess means to acknowledge. The word confess means to agree with, to say the same thing as God says. The word confess means to bring it to your mind, what this really is. Or, I'll give you a simple definition. To lay it all on the open, or to put your cards on the table, all of them. You know how poker players, I've seen them on television, they're like hiding. You know, they they hardly lift up the card to see what it is, right? Because they're so frightened, somebody else might say, Huh? I know what you got. They hide it, right? No, we turn the cards this way. And isn't it interesting that in poker or in any game, if you want to know the result, you turn the cards up. That'll tell you who won or who lost. Cards on the table, right? You see, it's not... It's not a formal profession, because that can be hypocritical. But it is a penitent revelation from my heart and of my heart. I'm telling God, this is what I'm like inside. This is what my heart and my mind are like, God. And you're right. You see it as bright as the sun. And I can hardly bear to look at it because it's so black with sin. Because all sin is like that. There's no white Light in sin. It is black, as black as black can be. It's dark. It's death. Right? That's what I have to confess. So I'm telling God what God already knows and what God's saying, tell me what it is. And you tell Him, this is what I have done, Lord. That's a confession. It involves humiliation. (laughs) Nobody likes to do it. And it involves humility. This is what I must do. This is what I must do. If you wish to slay sin, if you wish to kill sin, like the Puritans would tell us, if you want that experience, then lay it, all of it, before God. All of it in its ugliness and hatefulness. And tell Him. Confession means I must be sincere, right? Not shallow. Shallow is surface level. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Texas, you remember, with our grandchildren. We went swimming. They had a beautiful pool. Six inches shallow in the one section, going to ten inches, and then it fell off into the deep. Three feet to five feet, whatever it was. Well, little Josie, she's off into the deep end. But not little Benny. He's got to stay in the shallows, in the six inches, because he can't swim, can't do anything. Okay? The shallows, you can see everything. You can see everything. 
But those shallows also hide stuff, just as the deep hides things. The shallows can kill you. They can kill you, drown you, and so on. You know, the interesting thing about confessing your sins to God is that God does not require your confession just simply for the means of gaining information. Ah, that's what you did. Ah, thanks for telling me. That's not confession, right? As if God needs to gain information. No, God would tell you, this is the very best thing for you. This is the healing thing for you. I am helping you by urging you to confess, he would tell you. It will bring reconciliation with me. It will bring restoration and recovery. It will bring fellowship. Isn't that 1 John 1? We read that this morning. You want to have fellowship with God? Don't hide your sin. In other words, if I'm going to confess my sins to God, I must feel them in my heart. They must be heartfelt, not heartless. I'm really serious about confessing my sins is what I should say. Okay, so what's the point of confessing? That's the greatest point of all, isn't it? You shall obtain mercy. If we confess our sins, forsake our sins, we shall obtain mercy. Confession brings me hope, brings me help from God. But there is that other word that's so important, right? Notice, and forsakes their transgressions. Forsakes. There is no forgiveness with God and from God unless you forsake sin. That's it. You can confess sin and not forsake it. No forgiveness. You see, God is asking in confession, how serious are you really about dealing with your sin and being done with it? That's what he's saying to us. There's no forgiveness unless we forsake our sins. So this little word, and forsakes, forsakes, governs your confession. Because lip service is condemning. Always. Lip service is not the real thing. The real thing is, I must forsake my transgressions. That's the real issue, right? That word forsake means to depart from, to leave behind, to abandon. You see, to conceal sin and then confess it without forsaking it is to say, I'm sorry, Lord, but you've really tucked it away to come back to it another day. Because there it is. You haven't forsaken. You haven't forsaken. It's the hypocrite who confesses, but never forsakes, right? Isn't that the story of the two men who went to the temple to pray? The one a Pharisee, righteous in himself, and the other a publican, a sinner. And you remember how that Pharisee paraded all of his righteousness. I, I, I've done all this, I fast twice, twice a week, I, I, I do all these things, and I thank you God that I'm not like that man. I'm not like that man. What did that man do? He didn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he smote his breast. God be merciful. To me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. You know, forsaking sin, which is the real issue, is not easy. No, confession is by contrast the easy part. But confession can only be real if forsaking sin is undertaken. So when we say, I want, I'm going to forsake my sin... It must not be a theoretical thing or a theological thing, 
but a real practical thing. You can say it up here. But are you going to do it? Are you going to live it? Are you going to show it? I've forsaken my sins. That's what the writer is saying. It's an action. Not a one-time action, but certainly a one-time an action that occurs at one time, but continues. That's why I call this confessing for life. This is not a one-time thing and it's good to go and everything's hunky-dory. No, this is an ongoing way of life. To confess and forsake my sins. You know why that is the case? Because sin always troubles us. Even right now. Troubles me. Troubles you. It's not, it's not hidden away. It's right here. Charles Bridges says that we should plead the greatness of our sin and not the smallness of it. The greatness of our sin. You see, there's no such thing as an insignificant sin, is there? Because all sin merits eternal death. So it doesn't matter if it's tiny, insignificant, by your idea, or massive. All sin condemns. All sin kills. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. There's no such thing as a, an insignificant sin. It's never trifle or a trifle. It's never a mistake. You know, there's a lot of teaching today in the church that sin is a mistake. Adam and Eve made a mistake. No, they didn't make a mistake. They willfully, deliberately rebelled, violated the command of God. That's what they did. Didn't make a mistake. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is much more than a mistake, right? Sin is a deadly personal disease that I have. And you have. And all of us have. And we so desperately need mercy, right? And that sin that I have, it offends God always. Always. It feeds and breeds upon itself. That's, that's the awfulness of sin. The Bible tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. Think of wickedness. Sin out there. God is angry. How angry is God at all the sin that is out there in the world? You can't measure the anger of God, can you? You can't comprehend it. It's wrath. It's eternal wrath. And it's violent. And it's deadly. And it kills. And it judges. And it condemns. My little sin. That's what I get. And it's not just little is it really? Because you add them all up. Your sins, are, they fill this room and outside in the field and in the pond. In fact, they fill the city of Sarasota. Your sins alone. Your sins alone. My sins alone. If you want the forgiveness of God, what does God say? Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. I'm merciful. I will hear you. Confess. Forsake. You will obtain mercy. Notice, will obtain mercy. You see how certain it is? Will obtain. Not maybe. Not possibly. Will obtain. I think the King James, a beautiful way it says it, shall have mercy. Shall have mercy. Mercy for me. Mercy for you, right? So David continues in Psalm 32. This is what he says. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I said, I will confess. I will not cover them up. I will tell God, and I'll tell Him everything. I won't hide anything. I'll tell Him it all. And God did what? He forgave the abhorrency, the iniquity of my sin. The one thing about sin, it always requires the recognition that it must be paid for. Somebody has to pay. You have to pay. I have to pay, right? There's a penalty for sin. It's wages or death. There's a consequence to sin. That's what happened because of Adam. We all have this disease. We all have inclined ourselves towards evil, right? But God has had mercy on us, hasn't he, in saving us. I can't think of more joyous words than to, to think of God forgives me because I've told him my sins. He forgives me. Now I did that when I first came to Jesus at the cross and I have discovered I have to keep on telling Jesus and keep on telling God and every time I do you obtain mercy. Mercy. See mercy is not just a one time thing. Mercy is a characteristic of God that implies that God has pity for us. God has pity on us. He's merciful towards us. I know how God can be merciful. Because of Jesus. Because He's the righteous standard. And He died my death. He took my place. So that I get the righteous standard, the righteousness of Jesus imputed to me. So that when John writes in 1 John 1 verse 9, if you confess your sins. He, God, is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Why does it say He is faithful and just? Because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus is your only righteousness and my righteousness. I've no standing before God apart from Christ. I can't say, Lord, I've been a good servant. I can't say I've been preaching your word for 50 years. I can't say all these good things. I've, I've given lots of money to the poor. I've, I'm a good person. I can't say any of it. It doesn't count. The only thing that counts is Jesus. His righteousness for me. My sins for Him. God sees the great exchange. God says, you're free. Because I see righteousness. Jesus, you're not free. You're cursed. And you're condemned. For them. That's mercy, isn't it? That's real mercy, that. Because God didn't have to do it. He had mercy on you. He had mercy on me. One of the benefits of forgiveness is fellowship, right? It's the sweet fruit of forgiveness. To be in fellowship with God. Can you say that? I'm in fellowship with God. What a wonderful experience. What a joyful thing. I'm in fellowship with God. Why? Because my sins are forgiven. Not just at the cross, but ongoing. Because I'm keeping a short account with Jesus. And a short account with God. When I sin, I tell Him. And I forsake it. You know, mercy is what brings all of God to you. Not some of God. 
It was blind Bartimaeus. Blind, remember? Cannot see. He just heard the noise of the crowd. What's going on? Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And what did he do? Cried out, Jesus, son of David, the king, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped. He stopped what he wanted. That I might see. Done. Mercy. Thank God Jesus did not pass you by. Thank God that Jesus has not left us and walked away from us when he's the only man who could ever walk away from us perfectly. He didn't. He humiliated himself. He humbled himself. He gave himself up to sin and its curse for me, for you. And you want to hide your sins. You can't hide them. You can't hide them. You will not prosper. See, the one thing about mercy is that it removes self-confidence and it removes self-righteousness and it removes self-assertion. This is the day and age of people who say, I believe, on social media about how much they love themselves. I love myself. A Christian can't say that. What we say is, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And I don't deserve it. Right? That's pure grace, isn't it? It's pure grace. The Bible tells us that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a vessel of mercy. Romans 9. It tells us that every believer, every Christian, is a recipient of the mercy of God. Romans chapter 11. You have received mercy if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That should cause you to jump up. I notice nobody's jumping up. Now don't jump up. But you ought to feel it, right? You ought to feel it. That, that God has actually stopped by and had mercy on me when he could have just kept walking. And he would have been right to keep walking. To pass me by. But he didn't. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus stopped for me. Stopped for you. Because of grace. Because of mercy. And because of love. I'm so thankful Jesus didn't pass me by. Aren't you? Conversion always requires confession, doesn't it? Not only conviction, but confession. I'm a sinner. I'm a great sinner. I've done all these things, Lord. And I'm not going to sin again. That's what it leads to. I don't want to sin anymore. I'm tired of my sin. Thomas Brooks, one of the great Puritans, he says this, He who will not forsake his sin does not confess his sin. We confess our sins because we are sick with sin and sick of sin. Right? That's true. We only obtain spiritual health, spiritual mercy, by spiritual hatred of sin and self. Thomas Manton, another Puritan, he put it so graphically, he said, Conversion is the vomit of the soul. It's the throwing up of everything that I am, which is disgusting and vile and depraved. 
to God. Who knows it? Who knows it? And who takes it away by the blood of Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? Sin is always bitter in the end. It always bites at the end. And it devours as the sin, as, or it devours itself. Sin is an act of turning your heart away from God, as Richard Elaine said. It's an act, a deliberate act of turning away from God. Sin has put out our spiritual light, our spiritual eyes. It's made us blind. We are blind. And let me tell you, if that's true, and we are blind spiritually, then how great is the glorious mercy of God to give you spiritual sight, light. To see the truth. To know the truth that God saves you by His Word and by His Spirit. That's grace. He opens my eyes. He softens my heart to see His Son. And if I will not forsake my sin, if you will not forsake your sin, you will not have God. You will not have God. You want Christ and you want everything that Christ is? Forsake sin. Forsake sin. You see, how serious are we about our spiritual condition? Day by day. I mean, my spiritual condition changes every day. Up and down, all the time. I need Christ. I need the Word. Constantly, right? Salvation it brings regeneration. It doesn't bring renovation. That's the world. The world will offer you renovation. Turn over a new leaf. No, you can't even turn over a new leaf. <laughs> Only God can turn over the leaf of your life. If you want God to do that, then ask Him, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? That's, that's grace. But if you want to conceal and keep and hide and treasure your sin, no prospering with God. None. Zero. In fact, God will be against you in every turn if you won't forsake sin. It's a word to myself. And I know it's a word to you, because this is what the writer is saying. If you conceal your sin, you will never prosper. But if you confess and forsake them, you will have mercy. So I'm going to ask you this morning, which is it? What do you want? What will you have? Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths that are so pertinent to each of us because Father forgive us we do play with sin we do tolerate sin forgive us be merciful to us you are merciful so help us we pray to confess and forsake our sins and enjoy your mercy because you've promised it to us how we thank you for the Lord Jesus that apart from Jesus there's no salvation there's no forgiveness so thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his death. Thank you for your word. Speak to us, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I know time has gone, but I still would like to sing the uh, enclosed insert in the bulletin. Christ is mine.